so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Adonis Vidu, who's a professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and the author of a new book called The Same God Who Works All Things. Inseparable Operations in Trinitarian Theology. Today, we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity in the Christian life. Dr. Vidu earned his PhD from the University of Nottingham and came to Gordon-Conwell from his native Romania, where he had previously taught at Emmanuel University and the University of Bucharest. He's a constructive theologian who's involved in the recovery of patristic and medieval Trinitarian theology for the contemporary church. He's also the author of Atonement, Law, and Justice, The Cross and Historical and Cultural Context, Theology and Neopragmatism, and Post-Liberal Theological Method, a Critical Study. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Vidu, thank you so much for joining us here on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into scholarship and specifically what led you to write a book focusing on the doctrine of the Trinity? Yeah, thanks, Jason. Uh, It's great to be on the podcast. My journey in theology started with my thinking that I was called into ministry. My dad is a pastor. And I, I thought I might follow in his footsteps. Um, I went to study a uh, bachelor's in theology. And then about second year into that, I realized that maybe I don't have the same set of gifts that he has uh, and that the Lord uh, was actually calling me into, uh, into academic vocation. Um, so I got interested in the patristics and philosophy and philosophical hermeneutics and theology. And that meant that I, I pursued a PhD um, later on in um, philosophical theology. I did a PhD in, uh, in narrative theology in the UK with uh, Anthony Thistleton at the University of Nottingham. And then um, kind of stayed in that area for a while, uh, in the area of theological method and philosophical theology. And I eventually uh, realized uh, I'm talking too much about theological method. I want to say something positive and constructive in, in theology. So my first, my first work that is in the area of somewhat constructive theology has been on the doctrine of the atonement. And as I, was, as I was getting into the doctrine of the atonement, I realized that there's no way in which we can talk about 
the action of God in the world um, unless we account for what divine agency actually is. Because what we have when God acts in the world is we have a series of things showing up in the world. We have a series of creative effects, um, products of divine activity in the world. But God is not like his products. The products of his activity are finite things, finite effects. But God is infinite. God is transcendent. So I became very much aware of the, um, the need to qualify our speech about divine action in taking into account the divine agent. And of course, that's not very far from realizing, wait a minute, God is a trinity. What does it mean for God to act in the world as a trinity? And that brought me to this, basically to this topic. And, and more directly in connection to the atonement, you see certain things happening at the cross. You see the son feeling some sort of separateness from the father, some kind of some kind of abandonment by the father. Among evangelical Protestants, we talk about penal substitution, the, the idea that Christ the Son bore our punishment for the cross. And that, those, that raises all kinds of really interesting and, and hard questions about the Trinity. And I realized, okay, this is something that I wanted to get in on. One topic that I came across as I was, as I was reading this was this notion of inseparable operations. I found it all across the literature. And then I realized there isn't a single book that's written on inseparable operations. There's all kinds of articles here and there, but not, not a single one-volume discussion, critique, analysis of this really puzzling concept. And I, and I thought, okay, this is maybe something that I can contribute to the church uh, as a theologian. So I was really very happy um, and grateful, actually, to have the opportunity to write this book. Well, I know this book has been received by many as a, a great gift to the church, and so I appreciated your work in this book. Um, and I know it's contributed to kind of an ongoing conversation, especially as of late, about the nature of the Trinity, the operations of the Trinity, and kind of what this means for our life, the Christian life. I think for many listeners, they may come to this conversation not knowing some of the tenets of the debate, not really understanding some of the debates surrounding the Trinity, especially as of late or not even maybe totally understanding the Trinity themselves. Um, in the church, we often hear some uh, examples given of what is the Trinity and how we compare it to things. And so we have different analogies uh, that don't always really, there's good meaning behind them, and but often they kind of fall into these various ditches on each side of understanding the oneness and the threeness of God in that sense. So first, can you help us to understand a little bit about what classical Trinitarianism is and what do you mean when we talk about every action of the Trinity in the world is inseparable? Mm -hmm. yeah, so classical Trinitarianism is basically the doctrine of the Trinity as it has been received by the church from the earliest church fathers, both Eastern as well as Western church fathers. And it's a view that discusses the Trinity and the distinction between the persons of the Trinity in a way that maintains continuity with certain divine attributes, such as divine aseity, uh, divine simplicity, divine transcendence, divine immutability, and so on. And there's, there's this conviction in classical Trinitarianism that the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, does not take away, does not destroy divine simplicity. In fact, it only makes sense in light of divine simplicity or in conversation with this notion of divine simplicity. Now, when I say classical Trinitarianism, I sort of distinguish it from more modern post-Enlightenment um, approaches to, to the doctrine of the Trinity, which regard 
attributes such as simplicity and immutability and impassibility as being Hellenistic philosophical importations that we need to get rid of, basically, and return to a more basic biblical account of the Trinity. Now, in modern Trinitarianism, what happened is that by doing that, by considering these classical attributes, external importations, we basically returned to some of the heresies of the past, and therefore, I think, we lost uh, some of the essential heart of the doctrine of the Trinity. So classical Trinitarianism um, is an attempt to sort of return to that earlier patristic and medieval and Reformation understanding of the Trinity, which has been lost recently. Yeah, and we'll we'll dig into some of those kind of patristic and medieval and kind of Reformation kind of understandings of the Trinity here in a little bit. Uh, but one of the questions I wanted to kind of start off with was, can you help us better speak about the Trinity? When we talk about the nature of the Trinity, it's easy to fall into some of these historic heresies of modalism or even tritheism. And I know some who critique Christianity from a, other religious worldviews often critique Christianity and say, well, is there is God one or is God three? So do you really, is it a monotheistic religion if you say you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And so help us to kind of frame that up a little bit in terms of the language that we use about the oneness and the threeness or the three persons in one essence. Can you help us to kind of gain a basic vocabulary about how best to speak about the Trinity? Well, I mean, I think I don't see my book as adding anything to that, actually, to that conversation, um, because I don't think we can actually comprehend the Trinity because God is unlike anything that we have. An experience of God is um, Himself unique, um, and even though we have analogies and we have terms uh, and we have doctrines and concepts and so on, they never represent the divine being, um, or maybe I should say they never capture the divine being. They don't lead to a comprehension. They they facilitate access. They help us order our action in regards to God, our worship, our prayer. Um, they help us bear witness faithfully to how God has revealed himself, but they don't, they don't lead to an actual comprehension of who God is. And this is, this is sort of a basic, it's a basic presupposition of my account. And I think it's a basic presupposition of classical Trinitarianism. So then what we, what we have is we have these tools, such as the concept of person, the concept of substance, which really function as, as tools that help us rule and, and, and order our language, language about God. We don't know what the divine essence is. We don't know what a divine person is. We understand that that essence is not person. We understand that person has to do with relation, but no comprehension. And and this is kind of a constant witness in in the history and uh, in, in, in the fathers. This lack of comprehension. Um, the other thing that I kind of you know I want to emphasize here, and you, you're sort of asking me a question, and I know I'm taking it in a slightly different direction. But I do think that, um, like Augustine is saying, the, the knowledge of the Trinity is is it's given through prayer, um, it's given through fasting, it's it's given through certain spiritual disciplines. Because here we're dealing with trying to speak about and understanding a spiritual being, and if we are not spiritual persons, if we are carnal persons, if, if our imagination is wrapped up in all kinds of concepts that are drawn from material, our material existence, we were, we're going to have a hard time. So Augustine, Augustine often says, look, if you have a hard time understanding some of these concepts, then you have to go back and pray some more and fast some more and so on. So that's all to say that um, we don't understand it. 
So there are all these analogies that the church uses, um, such as uh, the egg analogy or the water analogy and or the family analogy in, in social Trinitarianism, all kinds of different anal- analogies. I mean, at one point, uh, Fred Sanders used an, uh, like an advertising analogy from, I think it was Michael Jordan in different stages of his career. The same Michael Jordan, but three different Michael Jordans. I thought that was pretty funny. But these analogies, every single analogy has its limitations. So we can't supply anything that's new. Now, the second part of your question has to do with inseparable operations. What does it mean to say that every operation of God um, in the world is inseparable? And this actually ties into what you said earlier about monotheism. Christians have always held that Christianity is a monotheist religion. So we've, we always insist that there's no departure from, from monotheism. Of course, Jews and Muslims are going to challenge that. But this, this has always been kind of an, an insistence, right? Something we have very much uh, staked everything on, that we are still a monotheist religion. So that means that God is really one being. God is not three beings. And if God is one being, then he acts as one being, right? So... This appears to clash with a number of things that we appear to see in the scriptures, right? We appear to see, well, only the Son is incarnate. The Father has not become incarnate. So then how, does, how, how is that reconciled? We, only the Son suffers uh, and dies on the cross and is resurrected. The, the Father does not. We look at the baptism of Jesus. We hear the voice from heaven. We see Christ being baptized, the Son, and then we see the, the dove, which represents the Holy Spirit. So we appear to see three separate agents doing three separate things, right? So then many people conclude from that, that, wait a minute, this is not monotheistic. We do appear to have three separate beings uh, that are doing different things, that are acting different actions, and it doesn't appear to be monotheistic. But that's only one side of the story, because there's another side of the story. If you read the New Testament, especially if you read John, where you have a propositional disclosure of who the Son is. And Christ speaks about himself as only doing what he sees the Father doing. And Christ also says that the works that he's doing, though it's the Father that's doing these works. So even though phenomenologically, that is, in terms of what appears to us to be the case, we, see, we seem to see sometimes three separate agents doing separate things. Propositionally, we're instructed that, wait a minute, it's the same God who does everything. So I think the doctrine of inseparable operation is really an attempt to reckon with that. How do we understand that the action of God is one? And just to cut a long story short, because God is one, everything God does in the world is unified. God acts as one agent in the world. And of course, this raises all kinds of questions, such as the ones I mentioned earlier. Well, why then we say that only the son becomes incarnate? or only the son dies and not the father, and so on. So, so there's a lot of philosophical and just common sense objections to this doctrine that I had to address in the book, which is why a book like this needed to be, needed to be written. No, that's fantastic. And I appreciate especially what you said is that often I think, and I, when I teach my worldview students and we're talking about philosophy and the nature of the Christian worldview, we often can fall into these ditches of just focusing on propositional beliefs. We can just focus on the truth Etc. But we don't often think about how our actions and how we are embodied creatures. Um, and so I love that when you're talking about with Augustine is when we try to describe or we try to think about who God is and how he's revealed himself to us. Um, it's also done through a posture of prayer and of worship. 
and, and fasting and seeking that relationship with God. It's not just about having the right beliefs, but also also having the right actions and having this corresponding within the Christian worldview. And I think that's so important uh, for not just understanding some of these more heady concepts in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity or inseparable operations, but really the nature of the Christian life is that it's not just focused on having the right beliefs per se, but also having the right actions and having these correspond and intersect with one another. I know for some, when they think of the Trinity, uh, that language isn't found in the scripture. It's very clear. We don't see like God is Trinity or something like that per se. But as you say, and you in the book, you have an entire section on kind of a biblical and theological basis or biblical and theological understanding of the Trinity, both in the Old and New Testament. So can you, you did this a little bit. Can you dig in a little bit deeper on how the Bible actually speaks of God in that sense being three persons, but one essence and how we see this maybe not different or distinct, but maybe a different emphasis placed on in the old versus the new Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what I thought needed needed to be done um, in that first chapter, which is my biblical theology of inseparable operations is not so much to give a, the biblical foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity, because I'm focusing on just this aspect of inseparable operations. Um, but I wanted to focus on a biblical theology of inseparable operations, like how does the Bible talk about how, how the Trinity acts in the world? And one of the things that I tried to uh, respond to there was this idea that the doctrine of inseparable operations is a metaphysical deduction. It's a metaphysical deduction from divine un- unity. And I said, okay, yeah, you can you can definitely argue for that from divine unity towards inseparable operations deductively. But also inductively, if you look in Scripture, I think it's quite clear that Scripture itself itself argues that the persons are always acting inseparably. So that's what I try to do there. In fact, even more than that, I argue that it is exactly through an affirmation of the inseparable operations of the Son and the Father specifically that we have the doctrine of the Trinity. In other words, there is no conflict between these two, but in fact, inseparable operations is the doctrine on which the doctrine of the Trinity rests. If you saw that branch, you're going to lose the doctrine of the Trinity altogether. How so? Well, in the New Testament, what the way in which the divinity of Christ is being asserted by the New Testament is precisely by ascribing to him that which only the Father does. Right. So I look at the way in which, in which to Jesus Christ are being ascribed two kinds of actions. On the one hand, covenant or covenantal kinds of actions, such as forgiveness of sins, interpretation of the law, and so on. And on the other hand, to Jesus Christ is is ascribed the unique act of creation, right? And we find this in John 1, we find this in Hebrews, Colossians, and so on. So you might say, and some some have argued that, that the ascription of Jesus to Jesus of covenantal acts does not necessarily demonstrate that he is divine. Because you might say angels undertook some of those sim- similar kinds of operations, or you might have a, a special, a special um, an appointed servant of God, and so on. It doesn't necessarily require a high Christology. And I kind of grant that. I say, okay, let's just grant that for a second. But there's something else that's being ascribed to Jesus. And I think that this is the most fundamental thing, and that is the fact that Jesus is ascribed to the very act of creation. Now, if you... If you accept classical monotheism and classical theism, 
then you operate with this clear distinction between God and everything else which is not God, which is also created by God. So if Jesus Christ, if to Jesus Christ is ascribed that primal act by which this, all this other reality apart from God is created, and on the other side of that divide lies only one being, then you're really saying a very clear thing, that this Jesus Christ is that one God who is the single, simple foundation of all other reality. And that's how the Bible is taught. This is, I think, what's at stake in, in the doctrine of inseparable operations. Because if that act is an act, it's an inseparable act of, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Then God acts outside of, outside of himself inseparably. But of course, in Scripture, you also see all kinds of distinctions. It, this is not just a, an undifferentiated unity, an undifferentiated in, inseparability, but but there's there's clear distinctions within it because we see the son always acting from the father and receiving his actions from the father, right? So so that has to be accounted for as well. It's not just the inseparability, but also the distinction within within the separability. So that has an interesting implication. It means that if the father, son, and spirit are always acting as as one, we cannot say that the God of the Old Testament is the Father, and then the God who acts in the New Testament is the Son, and then the God who acts in the you know, post-New Testament period is, is, is the Holy Spirit, right? In other words, the God who speaks to Moses through the burning bush, that God is not just the Father. That God is the one triune God speaking to Moses through the burning bush. So you can't really, for example, one practical implication here would be that you can't really say that you have a distinction between the, the harsh, wrathful, vengeful, horrible God of the Old Testament and the loving, merciful Son of God who is in the New Testament. You can't really make that kind of separation, that distinction. You can't say the Father has a bunch of attributes and then the Son has another bunch of attributes. The Father is the one that's wrathful. The Son is the one that's merciful because that would divide the Trinity into separate gods. You can't, so the other thing is you can say at the cross, for example, you can say that the father is sort of waiting in heaven to be placated by the son. And then the son comes here and does all this thing for us at the cross. And then all of a sudden, the father is enabled to be more loving towards us. Again, that separates the father from the son into three, into, into two, two separate beings. It ascribes different sets of attributes to them. It implies that one can change, one can change and shift his attributes and lose some attributes and replace some attributes. And I find that to be a very mythological, very Greek, very Olympian view of, of gods who are very much like human beings, but only more powerful. No, I think that's that's really helpful, and especially kind of understanding how the scriptures uh, speak to those some of those really, really important questions. And in addition to the scriptures, we also have a long history of church teaching, uh, church doctrine, of tradition, of thinking through some of these questions. I think often when people encounter difficult questions of scripture and some of these doctrines, we often think that we have to go at it alone. At least in the modern church, we think, well, these people didn't really know. They weren't enlightened. They didn't really understand what's going on, kind of the questions we're facing today. So we act as if we have to go at it alone. But one of the things that I appreciate about your book is you're drawing on the deep well of church history and of the Christian church and how we've dealt with these questions over the years. 
Um, and I know you you spend a good bit of time speaking about the early church and the medieval church, even getting into some of the Reformation understandings of the Trinity and its several operations. Who are some figures uh, that you would highlight for folks to say, hey, they were really helpful on some of these questions that we're wrestling with today, kind of pointing back to the tradition of the church? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, I would have to start with Augustine in the West and the Cappadocian Fathers in the East. Uh, particularly Gregory of Nyssa and Basil, uh, two of the Cappadocian fathers uh, in the East. Um, and then I would go to, I mean, th- then I would probably go to Aquinas, uh, who c- really consolidates both of these um, trajectories um, of, of Augustine on the one hand and the Cappadocians on, on, on the other. You know, by no means the East and the West speak with one voice here. But I think the the commonality between them is very, very, very strong. And I think on this issue, on inseparable operations, they they are of one. Uh, they're of one accord. Uh, it's a doctrine affirmed in both uh, traditions. So, so yeah, I would say you know start with um, start with Augustine's uh, book on the Trinity, De Trinitate, um, and maybe go to Basil on the Holy Spirit. Athanasius is also great here. I mean, it's it's hard to stop. You know, it's it's Hilary of Poitiers. Also, it's hard to say. Um, it's it's hard to limit myself to just to just a number of uh, just a few names. But but I would say Augustine is. Why don't you? You know, perhaps Augustine's letter uh, twenty two is a helpful sermon fifty two. I'm sorry, because it's more sermonic, right? It's more sermonic. Um, it's, it's probably more easily digestible. In terms of recent works on this, I really think two stand out. One is by the Swiss theologian uh, Gilles Emery. Uh, it's simply called The Trinity. Uh, he's a Catholic theologian, uh, and it's a book written for a somewhat beginning audience in theology. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't assume a lot of mastery of theology. Um, and then the book by Matthew Barrett called Simply Trinity, uh, which is also aimed at the more general public. Uh, and it's a, it's a great introduction to some of the same themes. But in terms of classical classical voices, um, Aquinas, Augustine, and the Cappadocian Fathers. No, and we definitely, um, I highly recommend Matthew Barrett's book. I know I benefited from it personally. Is This is not my expertise, uh, digging into kind of the doctrine of the Trinity and inseparable operations. And I benefited a lot from um, Dr. Barrett's work. And so we'll make sure to include that uh, in the show notes along with your works as well. One of the questions that I want to take before we kind of dive into some more resourcing is you talk about this a soft versus hard approach to inseparable operations. Can you tell us what does that language mean and then kind of how you navigate some of those questions? Sure. Those, those are my terms for um, distinguishing between two ways of thinking about, about the, the unity of divine operations. A soft approach is an approach that I find um, in some theologians, which I ultimately reject, which says something like this, the, the, the unity uh, between the actions of the Father, Son, Spirit is like a cooperative unity, is like a collective unity, something like a basketball team, you know, playing as one team, right? Some, someone's doing, you know, the, the three-point shooting, someone else is doing the, the dunking and so on and so forth. They're each doing their own, their own actions, but they have a generic collective kind of unity. Right. And I'm saying, yeah, a, a team of basketball, basketball players is still a team of five separate individuals, right? five separate beings on the court at any one time. So that's the soft approach. 
right? Uh, I, I find the soft approach mostly in, in so-called social Trinitarianism because social Trinitarianism emphasizes the distinction of the persons uh, as being primary a lot, and then the unity of essence as being it's sort of a function of that distinction of persons. And there's different kinds of social Trinitarianisms, and we don't need to get technical here. But imagine a family, which is one of their favorite favorite analogies for the Trinity. The Trinity is like a family. You have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which form one unit, just like the husband and the wife. Even though there are two individuals, they form one flesh, one body. So that's soft. Hard inseparability simply stresses that God acts as one agent. He acts as one agent, and every single action that can be ascribed to any one of them is also accomplished by all of them. And of course, this lands me in this difficulty. What about the incarnation? Right? Isn't only the Son incarnate? And my answer to that really, really quickly and simply is that incarnation is not an action. It's a state. Anything that has to do with action in the event of the incarnation is indeed accomplished by all of them. So the analogy, that, the analogy that Cyril of Alexandria uses for this is the analogy of, of dressing. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria speaks about the, incarna- the incarnation of, as the sun putting on human nature, putting on human nature. Now, the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son together are creating this human nature, but they're only giving it to the Son. So the Son assumes human nature. He receives human nature. He does not by himself produce it, but he receives it, right? So kind of like another analogy, again, sounding somewhat social Trinitarian, is you have a butler and a gentleman, and the butler is helping the gentleman dress, but the gentleman is also dressing himself. In other words, he's also stretching his feet, his arms, and so on and so forth, but only one of them is getting dressed, and that's the gentleman. Both are doing the dressing, only one of them is getting dressed. So the... On hard inseparability, um, this is the this is the the kind of the claim that the book makes and argues for is that everything is absolutely united when it comes to acting, and of course there are other objections, but I don't want to I don't want to spoil the pleasure mm-hmm. <laughs> the pleasure of reading. <laughs> no, I think that's really helpful, and that's I, I appreciate you kind of bringing and talking about social trinitarianism. We don't have a lot of time in the podcast to dig deep on that, obviously, um, but that's a question, especially in the field of ethics that I focus in where there's a lot of questions about using there's on more liberal traditions have used the Trinity as kind of a social program in some sense. And you see some questions about, well, is that's what's happening and some types of questions surrounding gender and sexuality today in the church. There's these metaphors drawn or these connections that aren't, they're sometimes maybe helpful in some very limited capacities, but overarching as a plan. I think that in many ways, and I read this in Barrett's book as well, is that it can distort the Trinity. We try to fit the Trinity into a kind of our finite creaturely categories. And as you said earlier, uh, we're trying to comprehend something that's really incomprehensible. We're not able to fully understand God. And so I think we should be careful about shoehorning the Trinity into some type of social program or some finite understanding or relationships in the world, because you said none of these metaphors are actually perfect in that sense. They're not really getting at the core of it. They're just trying to help us to understand. And that's one of the things I appreciate about your work in general is that you're very meticulous. You're very uh, sharp about the language you use. Um, And this book is obviously going to be a challenge to those who may not have, this isn't an entry-level book in some sense to the Trinity, but I think you tackle some really important questions here. 
that are worth us dwelling on, especially as uh, those of us who have dug a little bit deeper into some of these conversations and this understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. One of the things that I always leave uh, listeners with at the end of the podcast are some resources. So obviously, you've already mentioned Simply Trinity by Matt Barrett. You've mentioned some of the early church and medieval thinkers that some works that you would point us to. Are there some other works or resources uh, for those who may be just entering this conversation or maybe just kind of they've already read some of the entry-level stuff and want to dig a little bit deeper? Where would you point people to um, in terms of resources to dig a little bit deeper on these ideas? Well, I mean, there's different kinds of issues, and on inseparable operations, there there's only one book out there. I'm happy to say, uh, and sorry to say at the same time, uh, for now. So I would say, in in, in those terms, when when you th- when you're thinking about classical theism, I think the work of Craig Carter, um, contemplating God with great tradition, is a very helpful resource. On the cross, um, on what happens at the cross, I think a, a lot of your readers may be interested in that. I think Tom McCall's book, Forsaken, is an excellent, um, it's an excellent, contains an excellent discussion. It's also aimed at a more, um, at a broader lead, uh, readership. It doesn't aim to be a very technical book, unlike some, some, of, the, some of the other stuff he's written. On the divine attributes, um, um, Matthew Barrett has, an, has a book on the divine attributes as well, in addition, uh, earlier than his book on the Trinity. Uh, Fred Sanders has written a book um, uh, called The Triune God, which is a discussion of the doctrine of the Trinity, especially from the standpoint of how do we know the Trinity? How do we get to the doctrine of the Trinity? So the, there's, there's just a ton of stuff out there on the Trinity. Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity, is a phenomenal book as well, uh, really getting at how the Trinity leads us to worship. I have to say, I studied um, when I started off as a as a student in theology. I learned most of my Trinitarian theology from social Trinitarians. Uh, Colin Gunton was a big influence for me, and Colin Gunton has a couple of books focusing on the social relevance on, of the Trinity. The one, the three, and the many is probably the most his most direct book uh, that's getting at that. Uh, Catherine Maury, Maury Lacunia has also a book called God for Us, The Trinity and Christian Life. On the issue of sexuality, since you also mentioned that, I think Sarah Coakley's work on, on the Trinity is very, very interesting. Uh, it raises a, lots of, a lot of questions. I can't say I agree with everything uh, that she does, all the moves that she makes, but it's extremely intriguing and extremely stimulating. Not exactly for the faint-hearted, because it's it's profound work, but at the same time, she does manage to, to hit some of those worshipful notes that I think made her so, uh, so, so loved by many theologians uh, on both sides of the spectrum. So just there's, there's a ton of stuff out there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate, one, just kind of recommending those resources for listeners' sake. Um, if you didn't have time to write them all down, we'll have them in the show notes so you can grab those after the fact, as well as Dr. Vidu's um, books themselves, including this book. Uh, this recent book that he's published. Um, but Dr. Vidu, thank you so much. One, this has been a really stimulating, intellectually stimulating conversation. I know for some, this is kind of old hat. And for some of us, this is new. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time to kind of help us understand some of these concepts, help us to apply this in some sense to the, all of the Christian life. And I just really appreciate your scholarship uh, for taking the time to join us here today on the Digital Public Square. Thanks, Jason. And thanks for your work. I follow your podcast with great pleasure and love listening to your interviews. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Vidu and learn more about his work, as well as the recommended resources he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing issues of technology in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonbacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hainer and technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.